Good morning, everyone.
One more for you, which is another song of Thanksgiving. Yes, Lord, you are good to me. 
to me Yeah, Lord, you are good to me Always so good to me Okay, I'll hang up the guitar I'll be right back I was trying not to sneeze in that song Hey, <laughs> <I> hung on <laughs> Alrighty, we're back, and uh, good morning to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17? That was tough, and the second song I had it, I had this urge to sneeze, and I was like trying to hold on. <laughs> in fact, you see me trying to, in the beginning of the first verse somewhere, the first verse there, I was like trying, oh boy, I hope I don't sneeze in the middle of this song. I've never done that before, but it's what happens when you get old. Stuff like that happens. Anyways. And plus, if you had the nose I have, <laughs> it's not quite Jimmy Durante, but um, anyways, so let's, uh, you should be at 1 Timothy 5.17. We're going to, as you can see on the board, we're going to be studying 1 Timothy 5.20 today, which teaches that unrepentant pastors must be publicly rebuked in order to deter sinful behavior in the church. So a very, very important study. Uh, we're in that aspect of this, of this series on the past, the teacher, which we're discussing church discipline. And it's not being, I mean, there's, it's being practiced um, by churches with regards to the pastors, but it's also, it's being practiced, but really not the way they need to do it. And as I pointed out, there's a lot of pastors that have repented for what they've done, but they're not allowed to reassume re, uh, their duties. And uh, so a lot of people say, well, you lost the trust of the congregation. Yeah, that's, yeah, he's going to have to win back trust, but doesn't, doesn't he deserve grace? I mean, if we're not, the Christian community is not giving grace to their pastors. It's a bad testimony. And it's, why is the pastor uh, being treated treated any differently? If you look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17, and this passage, which talks about discipline for pastors, discipline for pastors uh, there's no indication that the, they should not be uh, uh, resume their duties after they repented for what they've done. And uh, the, 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 the church discipline is, is, applicable for pastors and all lay people. So we have no problem bringing back people who are uh, not pastors and, and, you know, going through church this when they repent of what they did. Uh, and then we'll, we, we allow them to assume their duties as the teacher of the prep school or a deacon or whatnot. But when it comes to pastors, no. So uh, the past, the church, the congregation has to learn about grace and practice grace. And many times I've seen pastors treat great people in their congregations with grace. And then they, uh, then when it, uh, the pastor needs grace, some Christians don't want to do that. So that's not right. So anyways, and then there's some churches, as we pointed out, do, don't practice it at all. And that's probably, and that's more than likely because of it's been 
abuse church discipline and people are getting thrown out and excommunicated from churches where, where there's no for unbiblical reasons. And so, uh, so we've been talking about this very important subject of the past, the teacher, and, and we're coming near the end. We have, um, we'll be finishing this. Uh, this is the 20th hour. So after today's lesson, we have two more lessons and then we'll wrap it up. So we have today's lesson and then on Thursday, right? Today's Tuesday. Thursday, we'll be finishing off the study of the pastor in relation to church discipline. And then the last hour, we'll be studying, uh, answering the question, can women be pastors? So we're going to go for all these controversial subjects that... Um, I find a lot of guys don't even want to touch. And uh, so I know there are guys that do that. And not, they, don't, they don't run away from certain things. But I know a lot of guys that do. And, uh, and because that one, that, you know, there's one that could be they, they lose their audience and they'll lose their offerings and they're all concerned about that. And for those of you who know me, I don't really give a hoot and holler. <laughs> it is what it is. So, you, you know, if, you, if uh, you know, I have to, the big thing is I, I don't want to be embarrassed before the Lord. I want to make sure that I... I taught the full counsel of God and, you know, the blood is off my hands. You heard that I gave it to you as straight as I could. And I try to do, you know, alternate, go, go teach your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, different uh, doctrinal subjects like the pastor teacher to the body of Christ. And so I'm trying to do the best I can. And I really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who, if the people are, I'm, ple I'm not here to please people as we know. I'm here to please the Lord. And if I'm pleasing the Lord, then it's going to benefit his people and the non-Christian for that matter. All right, so let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3, 16 to let the word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. Well, that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you for all those who are joining us live and uh, or through the recordings at a later date. I thank you for each and every one of them in the audience, and I just whether they're believers or non-Christians, uh, I just thank you for the technology, people taking advantage of it, and I pray that the technology will function properly, there'll be no problems with the recordings, the video and the audio, and the upload of these things to our various websites, podcasts, the media platforms that you've so graciously given to us. I pray you protect those uh, media platforms and and websites and um, podcasts and protect them all from the evil one and use them mightily, Father, uh, to get your word out to your people in a lost and dying world. I also pray, uh, I thank you for the streaming uh, uh, video service provided by um, YouTube, and I pray, Father, it would function properly today again, and I thank you for that. And I just pray, Father, that you would help me today to uh, communicate this subject of of contained in First uh, Timothy 5.20, which deals with unrepentant pastors being publicly rebuked in order to deter sinful behavior in the church. I pray you would help me do this with reverence, respect, and power, being sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction, and communicating your full counsel to your people so that they can receive their necessary spiritual nourishment and continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, 
your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help your people in the audience, help them mightily by the power of the Spirit to understand, apply, and with being taught, use them mightily. Uh, help them to be uh, humble and sensitive as well to the Spirit's guidance and direction so that they can uh, receive your word and it could be part of their thinking and their norms and their standards and uh, ultimately uh, manifest itself in their words and their actions. So, Father, we pray for this service in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. As okay, as we're, as we're continuing our study of the doctrine of past the teacher in our 20th hour in a 22-hour series, and then we'll be doing the book of Ephesians after that. Uh, normally, I alternate between Old Testament and New Testament, but sometimes I deviate. So I'm staying in the New Testament, but when I go back to the Old Testament after Ephesians, I'll be doing a couple of Old Testament books. Um, and so um, we're going to uh, continue with this study of the doctrine past the teacher. And by way of review, uh, I have a little outline that I've been showing during the course of this uh, series uh, of the past to teach of this doctrine that we're uh, studying. We noted an introduction which touches upon everything that we're going to cover uh, in this particular series. And then on the second hour, we noted the different terms for the past to teacher. And then thirdly, we started, uh, we talked about the fact that the past to teacher is a gift, or the gift of teaching is a gift. And we noted that the teacher uh, is actually, um, uh, along with those who have the gift of leadership, an, a pastor and an elder as well. And then we noted uh, the uh, the qualifications required for the man with the gift to pass the teacher in order to for him to assume the office of overseer, have his own ministry, and that mean we that took us to First Timothy three one through seven and Titus one six through nine, which give us these qualifications. And if you get rid of the duplicates, there's twenty five of these uh, qualifications. We're actually are marks of maturity that the man must manifest over an indefinite period of time uh, before he is uh, permitted to. Uh, uh, become a pastor of, of a church and leader of a church. And then we noted the threefold purpose of the spiritual gift of pastor teacher when we looked at Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. Then we noted the fourfold responsibility of the pastor teacher, which was to study, teach, pray, and exemplify godliness. And then we noted the financial support of the pastor, Galatians 6, 6 and 1 Corinthians 9. We talked about the pastor in, in this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, which talks about the elders. And we saw that the pastor is, uh, those who are receiving the word of God from the pastor are obligated to reciprocate and, and, and give him remuneration for his services. And then we are in the midst of a study of, the ch of church discipline in relation to the pastor teacher. We've, we've been in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, where the Lord maps out the guidelines for uh, disciplining not only uh, pastors, but uh, all Christians when they fall into sin or, or sinful patterns of behavior that uh, hurt the testimony of the church, hurt, hurt them. And, uh, and so we, we, we looked at Matthew 18, 15 through 17, and now we're in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25, which is talking about um, the uh, elders and in particular uh, also in disciplining them. As, as well, and, and quite a bit of detail. And then in the last hour, as I said a few moments ago, and have been uh, relating this during the course of this series, when I go over this outline, we'll be look, answering the question, can women be pastors? And of course, that's going to take us to that famous passage in First Timothy 2, 11 through 15, which is very controversial today, and uh, for good, uh, because of uh, postmodern America and um, feminism has actually infected the Christian community. And we'll talk about that when we get to it and have talked about it in the past. So uh, let's look at uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 17. And we're going to read from the Net Bible. 1 Timothy 5, 17. And we'll read 
uh, verses 17 through 25, and then we'll we'll look at verse 20 in detail, which is our pastor uh, passage. So if, in the Net Bible, 1 Timothy 5, 17 says, Elders who provide effective leadership must be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard in speaking and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his pay. Do not accept an accusation against an elder unless it can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And he's talking about the second stage of church discipline presented to us by the Lord in Matthew 18, uh, 16. And uh, so this begins his discussion, Paul's discussion with Timothy about uh, disciplining uh, pastors. And of course, the pastor, the, those, the man with the gift of teaching and the man who has the gift of leadership fall into the category of an elder, as we pointed out, as well as a pastor. And so uh, so these individuals, the pastor, teacher, and or the man with the gift of leadership are uh, to undergo church discipline when it's warranted. Then it says in verse 20, those guilty of sin must be rebuked before all as a warning to the rest. Before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I solemnly charge you to carry out these commands without prejudice or favoritism of any kind, that you don't give the pastor the elder, uh, any kind of uh, favoritism. He's to be treated just like everybody else is what he's saying. Verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily and so identify with the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I mean, don't ordain somebody when they haven't uh, matured enough to assume such a responsibility because if you do ordain somebody, Paul's saying you're complicit in that, per- that pastor's sin that you ordained to soon. So then it says that a parenthetical remark is in verse 23 for Timothy, stop drinking just water, but use a little wine for your digestion and your frequent illnesses. Verse 24, the sins of some people, and he's talking back now about pastors again, elders, the sins of some people are obvious going before them into judgment, but for others, they show up later. Similarly, good works are also obvious and the ones that are not cannot remain hidden. So we're going to be looking at verse 20. Our passage to say, uh, a passage as I said before, and again the Net Bible says in this verse, those guilty of sin must be rebuked before all as a warning to the rest. The NIV translates this verse, but those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. The ESV they translate this verse as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And then my translation of this verse goes as follows. You must continue to rebuke in the presence of everyone, those who, those pastors who continue as a lifestyle sinning in order that the rest also will be in a state of fear. And so in this verse, Paul's employing the figure of a syntaton, which means that there's no connective word between this particular verse and the previous one. And that emphasizes, that's and Paul does that on purpose because he's trying to emphasize the importance of this command for the Christian community in Ephesus. Now, when it says those, in my translation, those who continue as a lifestyle sinning, or as the Net Bible says, um, it says those guilty of sin. Okay, doesn't, if you notice, my translation is a little bit more interpretive. The NIV, again, it says, uh, the, but those elders who are sinning, okay, and they bring out the present tense a little bit more. The ESV says, as for those who persist in sin, and I give the translation, those who continue as a lifestyle sinning. So the participle form of this verb, hamatano, which is translated, uh, those who continue as a lifestyle sinning by myself, that refers to elders who are committing uh, sin and are unrepentant about it and not unrepentant Christians in general. 
which is indicated by the context. So in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25, Paul's instructing Timothy in context as to the proper treatment of elders. Throughout verses 17 through 25, as we pointed out, Paul's addressing the issue of elders, i.e. overseers, who possess the gifts of teaching and leadership. And this is indicated by the fact that in verses 17 and 18, he speaks with regard to remuneration, which is based on the teaching of the Old Testament. Then in verses 19 through 21, we pointed out, Paul's addressing the topic of administering church discipline with sinning pastors who are unrepentant, which is to be, and this such discipline is to be impartial. Don't play favorites with these guys. They're to be treated just like everybody else. Verse 22, we have Paul addressing the issue of ordaining pastors. And in verses 24 and 25, Paul gives the reason for his statements in verse 22, telling Timothy, why he should not be hasty in ordaining men as overseers. And as we pointed out, verse 23 is a parenthetical remark uh, addressing Timothy's help, who is a pastor, of course, and it's a digression based upon Paul's statement at the end of verse 22 for Timothy to keep himself pure. Thus, his statements in verses 24 and 25 should be considered as part of the same discussion. Now, in 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul commands Timothy to continue making it his habit of not receiving an accusation against an elder, except, however, on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, here in verse 20, Paul's discussing what to do with those elders who've been found guilty of sin as supported by the two or three witness, witnesses. So, once a particular sinful action on the part of the elder has been substantiated by two or three witnesses, Paul now moves to the next step, namely, how to deal with these elders. Now, the present tense of this verb is very, very, very important. Harmatano means, I translate it, those who continue in sin, in sin or I think that's the, uh, oh, those guilty of sin by the NIV. The, the Net Bible goes, uh, the NIV goes, uh, those, those elders who are sinning, the ESV, those who persist in sin, and again, my translation, you, uh, uh, the, uh, those who continue as a lifestyle, sinning. Notice I put that phrase as a lifestyle. And I'm, and the reason why is because it's a customary present. I'm interpreting the present tense here as a customary present, which signals an action that regularly occurs. So that this, that Aharmatano uh, is speaking of elders who are unrepentant sinners is indicated by, again, the present tense of this verb, which is, I pointed out, I interpret as a customary present that signals an action that regularly occurs. So here, the customary present tense of the verb describes these elders as regularly or habitually committing sin. So this is, in other words, not sporadic sinning. You know, they, I would not practice church discipline if the guy had a few too many beers at a party, at the Christmas party, and then you're going to apply church discipline to him. because And he's never done it before. I'll give you the example of my mother, who by accident had too much to drink as of her girlfriends at work years ago. We're giving her a slip, giving these drinks, and she didn't realize they tasted really good. She didn't, she, my mother never drank. She drank a glass of wine, but she didn't know, and she got really inebriated, <laughs> which was funny because when she came home, and then I had to go put her to bed, <laughs> and uh, was years ago. But so it was an accident. So, you know, so I'm saying this is what we're talking about is if, let's say, a guy is habitually, you know, abusing alcohol, getting drunk, that's cause for a church discipline. It's talking about a sinful lifestyle, a pattern of behavior that's detrimental. We're not talking about sporadic sinning. The present tense brings this out of Armitano. And I try to bring this 
out explicitly uh, in my translation. So as you look at my translation on the board, again, it bears repeating, you must continue to rebuke in the presence of everyone those who continue as a lifestyle sinning, okay? And the reason why I translate it that way is is the... Um, the, the present tense is a customary present. I, the NIV goes, who are sinning? See, they don't bring out this habitual activity. They just say they're in a state of sinning, or, which is fine. There's nothing wrong. There's a, there's a the customary present could be a, a state of customary present, meaning the subject exists in the state indicated by the verb. Or a lot of times it's a uh, speaking of a, uh, the subject uh, performing a, an action. It's regularly occurring or habitually occurring. So I'm inter- interpreting it that way. So, um, so you could say he's in a state of sinning. I, I like sent my translation better because, you know, the guy could be, and this is, you know, the guy could be, you know, when he's not teaching, he's like, uh, he's out there tying one on. He's drunk. Okay. But when he's, you know, when he's not teaching, he's not drunk. But when he comes outside of the pulpit and he's every night, he's getting drunk. Okay. That's a problem. That's what I'm talking about. Because he could he could hide it, you know. So he could hide it at the pulpit and not, you know, be, you know, show the not be drinking. But he, as soon as he gets outside of the pulpit, he goes, you know, he goes pop uh, and pounds down a, a six pack, you know. So I'm trying to say it's a lifestyle thing. He he could a state of idea would mean he it's he's always doing. He never breaks from it. You know, he's never confessing his sin, never stopping this. So I so at least the NIV does a, a decent tries to. Uh, bring out the pers- uh, the tense, but and then the ESV goes who persist in sin, which is good too. That's not bad either. So, um, so we see here that this word hamatano again. The present tense is what we call a customary present, which indicates that the subject is performing a regularly occurring action. So, this is emphasizing that these elders who are that are committing a particular sin as a lifestyle, or in other words, it's one that they habitually commit so as to hurt the testimony of the church and the spiritual growth of the pastor, and as a result, his congregation. Let me ent- emphasize this again, or repeat this. The present tense of this verb, hamatano, it speaks of a regularly or habitually, habitual act of sin. It's emphasizing that these elders are committing a particular sin as a lifestyle. Or in other words, it's one that they habitually commit so as to hurt the testimony of the church and the spiritual growth of the pastor, and as a result, his congregation. It indicates that this sin is not sporadic or occasional sinning, which every Christian does, as James points out in, in James 3. But a, it's a lifestyle, and it's a, it, it continues to be committed on a regular basis by the elder. Thus, they have not repented of this sin, meaning they have not stopped committing this sin on a habitual basis. They would be unrepentant, consequently, in fellowship with God if they had stopped committing this particular sin on a habitual basis. So a good example is, again, alcoholism. So if you, a guy could be good at the pulpit or, you know, or he's, he could also be, you know, not drinking during his studies. Okay. And you'll say, but then he start, gets out of work, you know, like they, they you know, guys do all the time. They, they're, they're fine at work. They, they don't drink. But once, once they get outside of work, they're going on a bar and they're, they're tying one on. And they're doing it every night. That is what we're talking, habitual activity. Or, you know, there's an affair going on. And this is an habitual activity. He's oh, The pastor's always going on to see his mistress or his, 
is as uh, uh, was it Goomba as they call him in the in the in the, in the Sopranos the Italian the the mob you know his his mistress not his wife and so this you know he's doing this all the time you know and uh, you know so that's a habitual activity this is what we're talking about with the present tense it's it's not a sporadic sin because all of us sin and pastors sin just like everybody else but this is a, a, a detrimental is the lifestyle of performing these sinful actions or, or committing this sinful behavior. So, uh, in my translation, it says, you must continue to rebuke in the presence of everyone. If you look at the uh, the Net Bible, they say, those guilty of sin must be rebuked before all, the ESV. They say, rebuke them in the presence of all. The NIV says, you are to reprove before everyone. And again, what I have is, uh, you must continue to rebuke in the presence of everyone. So, that phrase teaches that the unrepentant elders must be publicly rebuked before the entire Christian community. How do we know that? Well, it's indicated by the following hint of purpose clause, which I translate, in order that the rest will be in a state of fear. And that implies severity. And it teaches that the action of the verb for rebuke, elenko, in the Greek, results in the congregation fearing church discipline or being publicly rebuked by the entire church. And so this purpose clause indicates that this rebuke is public and it's speaking of the third and final stage of administering church discipline which is taught by our Lord in Matthew 18, 17. And again, the purpose of the rebuke is to get the sinning elder to admit his guilt and repent of the sin or abandon his sinful lifestyle, whatever it may be. So as we pointed out, we studied this particular point, very important point, uh, with regards to church discipline. The whole purpose of it is number one to benefit the the the, the sinner, the, the the believer that's has uh, involved in uh, uh, sinful patterns behavior that is self destructive and dishonoring to the Lord and uh, keeping them out of fellowship and and keeping them from growing to spiritual maturity. All right, it's also for the testimony of the church and because of the Lord requires it, and we don't want to bring uh, people slander the or speak badly of the cause of Christ because of our sinful behavior which is no different than the uh, the non-christian community so we're trying the whole purpose is is if those are the three reasons that we want to do this and uh, practice church discipline you know we don't want to hurt the cause of christ especially when it comes to chat pastors because uh, if they get caught if they're involved in something you know like uh, you know drunkenness or whatever's going on or d- drug problem or you know uh, that sort of thing or having uh, affairs uh, that's bad for the testimony of the church, obviously. So we want to help them and help the cause of Christ. And also, you know, uh, it's, it, it's, it infects the rest of the congregation, really. When you have your, your leader, you know, involved in, you know, immorality, or it's not, not a good thing, obviously. So uh, let's look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17 again. And I'll read it from the Net Bible. Matthew 18, 15. Matthew 18, 15. Again, I'm reading from the Net Bible. It says, if your brother sins, or as the NI, I like the NIV better. They have, let me get that for you. Oops. (laughs) Let me try again. If your brother or sister sins. See that? If your brother or sister sins. Well, the reason why I, I like that better is because 
adelphos, uh, it doesn't, in, th in this context, it doesn't speak of just the male gender. It speaks of the body of Christ without regards to their gender. Okay, so I like your brother and sister. Usually the Net Bible does a good job of, of uh, doing that. I think they might not have translated as they usually, they usually do what the NIV does. I think they might not have done that because of the fact that Jesus, the immediate context of who Jesus is talking to is disciples who are all men or his apostles. I don't, I don't know. I've, I'm just guessing now. But anyways, if, let's, let's just read for the NIV while we're, while we're here. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Okay, you compare that with Galatians 6.1, you're supposed to do this confrontation. It's not like a confrontation where you're an enemy. Obviously, you treat them like they're a brother or sister in Christ. You could be on the other end. You'd be humble, and you treat them the way you'd want to be treated if it was you on the other end of this, and that means gentleness. So that's the first stage. And then it gets to the sixth, verse 16, we get to the second stage. But if they will not listen, and when he says listen, he means they're not obeying. And not, in other words, they're not repenting. Take one or two others along with you, witnesses to their sin so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's, again, taken from the law. Now, we left on our last class, we talked about that. Now, if you don't have the witnesses, you gotta, you can't go any further. You gotta have, if you don't have any witnesses to this, you need to go, you, can, you don't have to go further. And um, and let me tell you something, too, like a Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll brought, brought it out in a, in a previous quote. You know, sometimes you might not have witnesses, but, you know, you could have, like he said, there was a church worker in his church that had having an adulterous affair uh, with a particular woman in the church and the emails revealed. So the emails was, was plenty of evidence that the guy was having an affair. You didn't need two or three witnesses. So with an email would be incriminating evidence, right? It would be enough to convict him. So keep that in mind. So if you don't have any evidence, drop the charges. And also if the people are not willing, oh yeah, he, he, or, she, you know, he or she or the body of Christ did this, and they're not willing to, you know, face the person and be interviewed by the church. They don't want. They just don't want to give their name. They don't want to get involved. Don't even bother. They have to come and step forward. You're talking about, especially if it's, you know, anybody in the body of Christ. You're going to make an accusation. You better face the people you're accusing and be uh, cross-examined. You know, if there's two or more witnesses, we don't want collusion. They have to be interviewed separately, making sure their testimony is agreed, you know, because they, they, they convicted Jesus, but in the, in the testimony of the witnesses was not even, the accusers was not even agreed upon. <laughs> so then we have in uh, verse 17, the third and final stage, if they ref still refuse to listen, they don't repent, tell it to the church. That's what Paul's talking about in First Timothy 5.20, you know, and when he says rebuke of the presence of all. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. As the Net Bible says, I like there's better here, a Gentile or a tax collector. Why? Well, in the context, Jesus was talking to his Jewish disciples and they would have, in Jewish culture, they'd have nothing to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't go into their home. And they would they didn't have any association with tax collectors because they considered them, the Jewish people in the first century considered them traitors uh, uh, to, the, to the Jewish people by collecting taxes for the Romans, these, these Jewish individuals. And of course, I like, I like it, and they brought it out in the, the Chosen series, which is really cool. And they really cool. They did this, Simon, Simon the Zealot, and then they have Matthew the tax collector. Well, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't, I love when they, in the Chosen, they, they have Jesus sending them out together. <laughs> and Jesus pulls Simon the Zealot over and saying, do you have any problem with that, with Matthew? <laughs> 
And uh, so I thought that was pretty great that they threw that in there. And of course, it's not in the Gospels, but we know that they were, that would, if you read history and you know the historical context, which they did a good job in the series doing, that could have been, that must have had to have been, that had to be a problem for Simon the Zealot. And, you know, hanging out with Jesus, with Matthew the tax collector. So Jesus had all these cross-section of people. And I love that, that he had Simon the Zealot, he chose as an apostle. And then you have... Uh, you know, Matthew the tax collector, because Simon the Zealot was trying to get, he was part of a movement that's trying to get the Romans out of uh, Judea, as we studied in our Jude, Jude series, which is all about those zealots. Those, the condemnation of Jude in that book is all about the, the zealots, which Simon used to be a part of. So it says again in verse 17, in Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, then treat him like a, t a Gentile or a tax collector. You can go back now to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, verse 20. So, it says, uh, when it says in my translation, you must re continue to rebuke in the presence of everyone, or as the EFV says, rebuke in the presence of all, or the NIV says, um, let me get the NIV, NIV back again, they have to reprove before everyone, or the Ned Bible, they go, must be rebuked before all, that's a great translation as well. So I translated this purpose, uh, this clause, not the purpose clause. You must continue to rebuke in the presence of everyone. So that teaches, this particular statement teaches that also a general precept of administering church discipline with respect to unrepentant elders. The fact that Paul addresses this issue of disciplining unrepentant sinning elders implies that there was a problem in the Christian community in Ephesus with elders. Undoubtedly, this was the direct result of the apostasy of many pastors in Ephesus, which Paul discusses, as we pointed out, in great detail in 1 Timothy chapter 1. They were, these pastors in the Christian community in Ephesus were, had uh, adhered to, not the gospel anymore, Paul's gospel, but the teaching of the Judaizers, who were Jewish Christians trying to put Gentile Christians under the law. So again, undoubtedly, when Paul said the fact that Paul addresses the issue of disciplining unrepentant sinning elders again implies that there was a problem in the Christian community in Ephesus with elders. Undoubtedly, as I said before, this was the direct result of the apostasy of many pastors in Ephesus, which Paul again discussed in great detail in First Timothy chapter one. Of course, there were elders who were not in apostasy, but there were some that were otherwise. Paul would not have addressed this issue in the first place. So Paul is simply communicating here in 1 Timothy 5.20, a general precept of the word of God and the Lord and the apostles' teaching without reference to whether there was a violation of this command or not. So Paul's statements in 1 Timothy 1.3 and 4.6 imply that Timothy was carrying out everything. Paul wrote to him in this epistle, indicating this command in 1 Timothy 5.20, which is addressed to Timothy, as indicated by the second person singular form of the verb, Alenho. Furthermore, Paul would not have delegated Timothy such a difficult task as the one in Ephesus unless he felt confident that Timothy could carry out everything he required of him. So therefore, this command and 1 Timothy 5.20 is simply a reminder to Timothy to continue doing what Paul told him to do before he left Macedonia. Now, the purpose clause in 1 Timothy 5.20, which I translate, in order that the rest also will be in a state of fear, the Net Bible translates this purpose clause as a warning to the rest. Uh, the NIV goes so that the others may take warning. The ESV goes so that the rest may stand in fear. And again, I translate this purpose clause, this hint of purpose clause, in order that the rest also be in a state of fear. So this purpose clause emphasizes 
that Paul presents Paul uh, this, this purpose clause uh, emphasizes that uh, that by obeying his previous uh, Paul wants uh, I gotta type over here my notes. <laughs> Will you, uh, how many times have I checked out my notes and I and I and I still find a a, a, a typo. So, in order that the rest will also be in a state of fear is a purpose clause. It emphasizes that, or presents Paul's purpose for Timothy obeying his previous command to continue rebuking those elders who continue as a lifestyle of sinning. It also teaches this purpose clause that the public rebuke of the unrepentant elder is not only guilty, not only for the guilty party, but also for the entire Christian community. Let me repeat that. This purpose clause it teaches that the public rebuke of this unrepentant elder is not only for the guilty party, the unrepentant elder, but also for the entire Christian community. The word rest, loipos, uh, in the Greek, it's referring to the Ephesian Christian community as a corporate unit, but in contrast to the unrepentant elder who's being disciplined by the church for his sinful lifestyle. And the word for fear, phobos, uh, it speaks of being disciplined publicly by the entire church for sinful for a sinful lifestyle. Paul's teaching here that the administration of church discipline with regards to an elder who refuses to admit his guilt and repent of his sinful lifestyle by rebuking him publicly before the entire church will serve as a deterrent to sinful behavior and lifestyles among the individual members of the Christian community. So Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 5, 19-20 indicates that Paul's following the procedure to administer church discipline as taught by the Lord in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, as we just read. The Lord teaches in this passage, as we, as we read, that church discipline begins with a private confrontation. The believer who is habitually sinning or possesses a lifestyle of sinning must be confronted privately as taught by the Lord in Matthew 18, 15. Also, we noted in Matthew 18, 16, these elders who have an, are involved in a sinful, habitual lifestyle of sinning are to be confronted by two or three witnesses. And the third and final stage, as we saw in Matthew 18, 17, teaches, uh, would require that the entire church rebuke the sinning elder, and the last stage would involve him being removed from the fellowship of the church by the entire church. It's to be done by everyone, as Paul says to the Corinthians when talking about church discipline, and 1 Timothy 5, and then also uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. So this third stage, of church discipline mapped out for the Lord for for us by the Lord Matthew 18 17 is being referred to here in Matthew 5 20. So the fourth stage is not mentioned by Paul in this passage because he just wants to say he he, he just says to publicly rebuke the unrepentant elder and does not say to remove them. And thus he, what he's doing is he's leaving room open for repentance for some of the apostate elders in Ephesus. So again the fourth stage of church discipline is not mentioned by Paul here in 1 Timothy 5.20 to the, the end of the chapter because he just wants to publicly rebuke the unrepentant elder and does not say to remove them, remove them and thus he's leaving room open for repentance for some of the apostate elders in Ephesus who he talks about again in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in detail. Now, if the sinning elder does not repent from the rebuke of the entire church, as the Lord taught us, he is to be removed from the fellowship of the church until he does. So that Paul is following the Lord's teaching in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is indicated by the fact that in 1 Timothy 5, 19, he mentions two or three witnesses being used to establish guilt. And that corresponds again to Matthew 18, 16. Then in 1 Timothy 5, 20, 
He speaks of publicly rebuking the guilty party, which corresponds to Matthew 18, 17. And this indicates that Paul is not instituting a special way of disciplining elders. If these elders repent, they should, like anybody else in the body of Christ, who's been caught in a, in a, tra in a transgression, they should be allowed back in the fellowship of the church. And that's what the Lord teaches in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. So if a pastor repents of whatever he was done, you know, he, so like, for instance, if he's an alcoholic and he gets help for his alcoholism and he gets cleaned up, he should be allowed to be back, brought back in as the pastor. Why isn't he being treated in grace? Why are we just throwing these guys and kicking these guys to the curbs? You know, we have a double standard. We're treating, the Lord didn't have any double standards. He didn't have any preferential treatment, you know? You know, you're not to pay, play, you know, Paul tells Timothy in this passage in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25, not to have any favoritism toward the pastor. But at the same time, the flip side, we shouldn't be treating him uh, worse than we would uh, anybody else in the congregation. They, they should be giving grace too, is what I'm saying. But a lot of churches are not doing that. They're kicking these guys to the curb. And a lot of these guys have families, for crying out loud, you know? So this is, this is a bad situation that's going on in a church in America. We need to get this straightened out. So therefore, there are not two sets of rules with regards to church discipline, meaning that the same rules that are used to deal with sinful behavior among individual Christians are to be used with respect to elders. The Lord never talks about in this passage or anywhere else that like the apostles who are pastors too, should be treated any different than anybody else in the congregation. It doesn't make that differenti differentiation. There's no two sets of rules. So whatever is, uh, uh, whatever, how what, when we practice church discipline toward people who are the laity, the people who are not pastors or elders or, you know, or uh, we're not to treat them better than the pastor when we practice church discipline with him, he should be treated in grace just like everybody else. So this same discipline, this same discipline of removing an unrepentant sinner from the congregation should be applied to unrepentant pastors. The same grace that is to be demonstrated to repentant Christians after they've been confronted with regards to this sin is to be exercised toward repentant pastors. Let me repeat this. Very important. The same grace that is to be demonstrated to, to repentant Christians after they've been confronted with regards to this sin is to be exercised towards repentant pastors. If the church does not forgive and show grace to repentant pastors, is this not hypocrisy and sin itself and a poor testimony before the unsaved as well as a failure to exercise God's love? Of course it is. So Paul's teaching is not only within the framework of our Lord's teaching in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, but also within the framework of Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 19.15, I'm reading from the Net Bible. A single witness may not testify against another person for any trespass or sin that he commits. A matter may be legally established only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a false witness testifies against another person and accuses him of a crime, then both parties to the controversy must stand before the Lord. That is before the priest and judges who will be in office in those days. The judges will thoroughly investigate the matter. And if the witness should prove to be false and to have false given false testimony against the accused, you must do to him what he intended to do to the accused. 
And this way you will purge evil from among you. I mean, it will deter people in the future from bearing, uh, from giving false witness against somebody. The rest of the people will hear and become afraid to keep doing such evil among you. Just what Paul said in 1 Timothy, right? 5.20. You must not show pity. The principle will be life for life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, and a foot for a foot. That verse, verse 21, as we pointed out, is brings out the principle lex teleonis. What's it mean? The punishment must fit the crime. So, you don't want to do what they do in some Islamic states where a child steals something, probably because he was starving, and they cut his hand off or they run it over with a truck. The stories and pictures I've seen about that. Unbelievable. They're try- they, they, they don't understand it's the punishment must fit the crime. So a kid steals uh, you know, uh, a potato out of the market. You shouldn't be cutting his hand off, okay? <laughs> you know, you're not giving him the death penalty. That doesn't fit. I'm being ridiculous, but just to prove a point, okay? You, the punishment must fit the crime. So, um, so that's why the, the, someone who's convicted of a capital crime like murder, rape, or kidnapping, the Bible calls those capital crimes, after they've been found guilty, the jury of their peers and the witnesses and have an evidence, they should be executed. A life for a life, the Lord says. He requires it. And we're not doing that in this country. And as I said before, that's going to be, that's one of the big problems that God has with our country. We don't want to practice church discipline. And I don't see any political candidates talking about the death penalty anymore. And uh, we're, we're really out. We're really in bad shape with that too. We, man, we have a lot of problems. We don't even practice church, uh, uh, capital punishment. No wonder there's no deter, uh, deterrent for crime in this country. People are running into, well, that's for a story for another day. I don't want to get off track here. Go, go, go off on it. Well, I might as well say it. You know, people running into stores in California and stealing stuff out of there. And the police won't go down there unless it's over a thousand dollars. It's ridiculous. And I don't feel, I'm not mad at the police. I'm mad at our, our country. And they, we don't, we think we're barbaric for executing criminals. Where's the, you know, but we want, you know, for the mass murderers, you know, like Jeffrey Dahmer and all the, the, the marathon bomber, even people in Massachusetts, many who, most of which are liberal in their politics and their theology, uh, they, uh, they have no problem saying, calling for the death penalty for the marathon bomber. So basically, as I've said many times in the past, so the families get uh, of the marathon, uh, the guy who, who is the, who were vict- the families of the, of those who, uh, who were victims to the marathon bomber, uh, marathon bombers, it was plural, uh, they get justice, but a person whose grandmother was, you know, murdered and mugged and killed for $5, okay, her family, her family doesn't get any justice. Blood on the land, people. Blood on the land. Pray for your country. and Pray that God raise up people, men. I don't care if it's a man or a woman in politics that believe in the death penalty and are willing to say, but you're going to have to change the public debate. You're going to have to educate people. And uh, But our education system and the colleges, universities, and the public schools, and, and also in television, we're, in, we're totally brainwashed to thinking that you know capital punishment is barbaric. Most of the nations of the world in history up to the, even now around the world, they think we're out of our minds. You know, we get what we deserve. So we get the criminal, criminals running rampant and they do whatever they want. So if your family member gets killed, it's on you. And that's because you are, you don't want the death penalty. You're part of the problem. You know, don't blame your politicians or the police. The police are trying to do the best they can. So we do the police a lot of favor by, you know, executing the criminals. Okay. So 
Let's wrap up this study. Go back to 1 Timothy 5.20. Those guilty of sin must be rebuked before all as a warning to the rest. So again, Paul's teaching is not only within the framework of our Lord's teaching in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, but also within the framework of Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. So this passage, uh, Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21, teaches that the punishment inflicted upon the guilty party is to cause the rest of the Israelite congregation to fear of receiving the same kind of punishment if they become involved in sin. So, Again, in 1 Timothy 5.20, when Paul says, those guilty of sin must be rebuked before all, as a warning to the rest, he's talking about that doing this, practicing this third stage of church discipline, with regards to the pastor, who's you know who uh, has a lifestyle of sinning in some area, you must, uh, it'll cause the rest of the congregation, when they see he's being publicly rebuked uh, before the church for his adulterous affairs or whatever his his drunkenness uh he is uh that would deter them from the, the congregation from practicing the sort of things that he's guilty of okay so it's a deterrent to crime is that going to stop everybody no you know just like having capital punishment it's not going to stop every murder every person who wants to murder uh but i'll gu- guarantee you it'll stop a lot of them in fact if you start executing the drug dealers who's selling drugs to children and, and adults that ends up in them getting addictive and killing them, you know, like the opioid thing, they should be hung. They should be, they should be executed. And don't make it humane, you know? Don't make it like, you know, we'll give him a little injection, he falls asleep. You know, bring back the death, shoot him, hang him. You know, they should, the punishment should fit the crime. Okay, think about that. In Israel, they stone the person. And, uh, and because then it'll, that, that will, I'll bet you that'll deter a lot of people. That'll make them think twice before they raise a a, a hand in, in anger and uh, threaten violence with anybody or commit violence against anybody in this country. But again, we're not doing that. And so the church must practice church discipline with regards to their pastors when it's warranted. And so we've gone through this, uh, the different stages of this uh, in our study. So in, in our next We'll wrap up here, but our next uh, class on Thursday, oh, let's see, where it is it? Uh, yeah. We're going to be studying First uh, Timothy 5.21, which teaches that unrepentant pastors must be disciplined without preju- prejudging or prejudice. We're not to give them special treatment. They are to be treated just like anybody else in the body of Christ. Okay? So that'll be our next uh, class on Thursday. And uh, we're rapidly coming to an end of the Doctrine of Past the Teacher. And as I said before, we'll be doing the Book of Ephesians after this particular series. So let's close in prayer. Thank you for joining us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson would be a great blessing to the body of Christ and help us in uh, administering church discipline with regards to pastors when it's warranted. Uh, and uh, I just pray, Father, that your spirit would use these things that we taught today, this lesson today, and the, and the previous ones, use them mightily and helping the body of Christ, whether they're pastors or people, they're lay people who are not pastors. I just pray that this lesson and the other previous lessons would be a great blessing to the body of Christ. In His name, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.